ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We've all seen that incident in the shopping centre where you see some parents with a kid and the kid is having a total meltdown in the main concourse, thrashing around, smashing things, screaming abuse at the parents. The parents you see are stressed and exhausted, doing everything they can to mollify the kid or to simply drag the kid away. And you think to yourself, well, thank God I can just walk on past this drama unless you are that parent. And this is something that happens all the time to you. And you ask yourself, is there something wrong with my kid or is it me? Am I the problem? Am I the enabler of this behaviour? Professor Mark Dads is here today. Mark is a psychologist who specialises in these situations. He's the director of the Child Behaviour Research Clinic at the University of Sydney. And the focus of his work is not so much the children who might be acting up for all sorts of reasons, but on helping the parents. Hello, Mark. Welcome. Hi, Richard. Tell me about this clinic that you run now. How does it work? Well, we run on the smell of an oily rag. So the whole thing is is kind of run by research, if you like. So we partner with the families and asking the question, is this the best thing we can do to help with these kids? Is this the best thing we can do to help with you as parents? And so what happens is families come in from all sorts of sources. They either, you know, are lucky enough to find us themselves or they get referred by their school or their GP or something like that. They come in and they're like, help me. My child screams, fights, punches, kicks, won't do as they're told, has meltdowns, tantrums and so on like that. We've tried everything. We don't know what to do. We've Googled everything. (laughs) Nothing works. Mm. This is the clinic at the end of the universe. Please help us. <laughs> How old are the kids typically when they come in? Well, we take everywhere from three to 16, which is a long range. But I have to say the sweet spot is kind of three to eight childhood period. That's where you can get the most change, the most bang for your buck. You can get change with teenagers, but they bring their own set of issues to bear on these things. I'm assuming many of these kids have conditions that would be diagnosed as ADHD or perhaps they're on the autism spectrum. Am I right in thinking that? Uh, exactly. And in fact, the use of these labels has massively increased over the last decade or so and it's increasing. When I first started back in the 80s when they were just, you know, out of control kids, uh, that was our diagnosis then. Now the primary diagnosis is something called oppositional defiant disorder, which means you just refuse to cooperate and you just defy everything. So you're a nightmare for parents and teachers and so on. But you're right, these kids generally have lashings of ADHD, uh, aspects of autism as well. Very often they're anxious. And so the most tricky kids are those with these kind of mixed profiles. They're impulsive. They don't get it socially. They worry about things and their performance. And they react to all that by hitting out at everyone else and getting angry and blaming everybody else and so on. Having dealt with the odd child tantrum myself, one thing I notice that's quite distressing is that some, very, well, sometimes the, the child can't seem to get out of it. You can see that they, they may even want to get out of it, but they can't seem to find their way out of the tantrum. Exactly, Richard. That's it. They get trapped in it. They get stuck in it and they just don't know what to do. And sometimes you can see that they, they really have got no way out and it's up to the parent to really help them out of that. And sometimes the parent gets stuck in the same response as well. You know, you swear when you become a parent, I'm not going to make the same mistakes <laughs> and all that. And the first time you're standing there and facing a little three-year-old who's going no and screaming and all that, of course, all of your raw buttons open up and you suddenly find yourself saying exactly what dad said to you or or whatever. (laughs) And you get stuck as well. And really, that's kind of what our job is to try and help unstick people and see that there's another way to get through this. You talk about it uh, in your work about kids who are acting outwards and those who are acting inwards. What, what do you mean by that distinction? Yeah, well, that's a that's a very old term in psychology. We, we talk about internalising children or internalising people, which means those that take the stress of their life 
and direct it inwards, blame themselves. I'm no good. I can't cope. And people with internalizing problems uh, generally show with anxiety and depression and so on. Externalizing is take your stress and go, it's your fault. It's everybody else's fault. I'm going to hit out and so on. So, you know, we see a lot of the kids with this kind of antisocial behavior problems that we see, it's quite amusing sometimes. You know, you'll you'll actually see them whack their sister or something and they'll say, I didn't do it. And you're like, well, we got the video here. <laughs> and I'm like, that wasn't me. That was her. You mentioned their kids as young as three, I think, and as old as 16. Is it easier or more difficult to work with parents of teenagers? Ooh, is it difficult to work with the parents of the teenagers? Mm. I think the parents are probably the same in terms of ease of working with them. It's just that the problem has generally been, you know, around for so much longer. Habits have become deeper, feelings of resent and that have become stronger. And of course, the teenager has now got their own will and their own life that they're moving towards. So it's definitely harder to get change with teenagers. But I think that's mainly coming from, you know, the age of the child and how long the problem's been going on for. How do you generally feel about the wild children that come in with these parents? How do I feel about them? Mm. That's a very interesting question. I mean, do you feel for them? I mean, or have you just seen so much of it that you're kind of, does your compassion run out after it at some point for the kid, the kid, him or herself? I don't think your compassion runs out. I think different children provoke different responses though. So we, we see some kids that definitely my heart leaps out of them, you know, tough life, awful things have happened and so on, trauma in their lives and so on, awful. But then, you know, we also see kids that are come from what you might consider a rather healthy family that are getting pretty close towards the bad seed sort of definition there, they're quite nasty and so on. And it's harder to feel actual, you know, empathy and sympathy for those particular children. I think my empathy and my sympathy is more for the overall big picture of it all. I just think if you can change the trajectory of children early so that they don't have to rely on aggression and violence and manipulation and so on, you're investing more in the world than many other solutions, I think. So what can you offer these parents? Insights, strategies... Well, yes, absolutely, both. So what we typically do is we, first of all, assess the child very carefully because parents are just full of questions. Why is my child like this? As you said, is it me? Is there something wrong with my child? Is it autism? Is it, you know, what is it? So we do a very careful assessment and develop a shared perception with the family so they are ready to change. So when you do that with the kid, do you go and see the kid without the parents in the room? Yes, we we assess the child on their own. We assess the child with the parents. We talk to the teachers. This is, I mean, this is a foundation of modern psychology is um, that you do what's called multi-informant assessment. If you go to see a practitioner and they just do assessment by talking to you or just the child, that's not good enough. To get a good picture of a child, you need to talk to the entire environment of that child and get an accurate picture. So that's really important. So we share that with the family until they go, yep, that's making sense to me. I, I agree. Let's change it. When you're observing the child, does it help to be able to observe them in a meltdown, in a tantrum, to observe them acting out? And can you sort of weather that storm and sort of keep your analytical hat on and go, oh, this is giving me all sorts of information about what's ailing the child? That's Yeah, absolutely. If, you see, if you're lucky enough to catch a meltdown, well, I'm not sure lucky's the word. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you're lucky enough to see that, then, of course, it teaches you things. But it's very interesting. A tantrum or aggression begins with less severe behaviour. And you can often see it just in the way the parent is interacting with the child in just common play. And then we say to them, can you ask your child to pick up the toys now? We just look at the way the instructions are given and things like that. You get a pretty good idea from that what's going on. What are the basic principles of your advice that you're able to give parents? We have 
four pillars that we use in our program. And the first one is one that's just common to all behaviour change programs. And that is good old fashioned learning theory, rewards, carrots and sticks and so on. But when you translate that to working with children, it becomes this. Are you able to engage with your child when things are going well and look them in the eye and love them and praise them and spend time with them and encourage them and all that. So that's the whole catch the child being good. And we do that as our first session. And it's amazing what a change that will make. Because families often say, no, we already do that. I already praise my child. You know, we say, let's just do it in a very rich, engaged way from your heart. So we do that first. Then we bring in the stick, discipline. And that's the kind of the opposite, whereas the positive is, you know, full of verve and excitement and love. Discipline needs to be predictable, boring, same thing every time. It's like, I'm not angry, you're not the devil, you're just a little child who's done this and this is the consequence that we all do. So we bring in those two things. So that's, we call that in psychology, learning theory, if you like. And that's exactly the way someone trains animals. We, we train our loved partners in the same ways and whether we want to or not. But then we use lashings of a thing called attachment theory, which is about setting up a secure, predictable, loving response with the child. Next, we bring in structural family therapy, which is really just saying, if you've got a child, you've got to work as a team. And if your marriage is on the rocks or you one of you is tough and the other one is really lax and you fight about it, this is not going to help. So we bring in the marriage, the partnership, the parents as a team and work on their relationship. And finally, we work on what we call attributions. It's very interesting. If a child throws a tantrum in front of you, you get drawn into this, why are they doing this? Are they doing it to hurt me deliberately? Are they ADHD? Is it because they've got the genes of my (laughs) ex-husband? So there's all these attributions and those things can be very helpful or very toxic. Yeah, very poisonous thoughts, aren't they? Exactly. I'm hearing you say a lot of words like predictability and stability and structure and those kinds of things. Is this really a large part of what you're aiming for, creating an environment where the the child will understand what's going to happen if if I do this or that? Yes, uh, that's really important when it comes to discipline. That's the part we want to be predictable and uh, boring, if you like, non-emotional, not not involved in, you know, decade-old battles in the family. It's just about you haven't got ready for school, therefore the consequence is this. And if the child knows that, children thrive on learning that routine and, and starting to own their own life. Even if they kick against it, they kind of like it at the same time. Oh, they kick against it, but they do like it. Yeah, they, they, if, it, if it's done in a really calm, loving way and, and they, it, they'll end up buying into it, yeah. But then the, the loving attachment side of things, that can be more unpredictable, more Exa- spontaneous. Absolutely. We get, parents say, oh, you're going to want me to do this the same way every day, aren't you? And we're saying, no, actually, no, we want you to be wildly unpredictable. And that's a very interesting scientific principle of learning theory is that when you reward somebody, you want it to be intermittent, unpredictable and so on. So if you get the same reward every time, for example, with your child, you've put a sticker up on the fridge the where they get an elephant stamp every time they, <laughs> you know, get ready for school, it'll last about two days. Right. Whereas what yeah. we want you to do is the first time run into the room, pick them up, give them a huge hug, toss them in the air. The second time, just walk into the room and wink. The third time, walk into the room and offer cash. No, I'm joking. (laughs) Walk into the room and give them a privilege. You know what I mean? The fourth time, don't do anything. The fifth time, take the whole family down to the park and get an ice cream for it. So make it unpredictable and so on like that. These situations put extraordinary pressures 
oh, as you say, on marriages, partnerships, on the parents' relationship. Are you able to catch a few marriages before they break under these situations? That's where actually where I started, Richard. It was interesting. Back in the 80s, I uh, started doing a PhD with my mentor at that stage, Matt Sanders, who developed the Triple P program, made a huge contribution. When he said, what do you want to focus on? I was like, marriages. That's what I want to do. I want to work on the parental relationship here. So my first bunch of research was looking at the effect of marital problems on the ability to parent. And of course, we found that, you know, where the marriage is bad, it's really, really hard to do that. We found that doing a brief marital intervention had a big impact. Now, this is very interesting. Did we go into their sex lives and love and everything like that? Not really. We said the child's out of control you want help, let's call a moratorium, a truce on the marriage for now and see if you can work together as a team. That sounds terribly practical. Terribly <laughs> practical, very simple. We, so we said, okay, we advise you to do three things. One, when there's a child problem, just work as a team. Don't undermine each other. You know, because that's, that's one of the worst things you can do. Someone's trying to, you know, work with the child and the other one comes in and goes, don't say that or, you know, backs up the child. Terrible. Child will learn to split the parents very quickly. So one, work together. Two, come home and simply say, how are you going? How's your day been? <laughs> and number three, go on a date without the children. And don't talk about the children. <laughs> so very interesting. I really enjoy this part of it. You know, you, you see marriages that definitely get saved by it. Some are beyond the pale and it's too late, but many of them, they go, we did that, our child's better, we're talking to each other again. Beautiful to watch. When single parents come in, is it that much easier or that much harder, given that there's no, there's not going to be sort of disagreements if there's not another <laughs> yeah. parent there to disagree with? Or does it make it that much harder because they don't have another parent to help stand beside them dealing with this situation? Yeah, yeah. And look, it, it's, it has its uh, advantages and disadvantages. I mean, I suppose it's an advantage to say you, you're there on your own, you've got no one to question you. Yeah. But that's very hard in terms of resources. Raising kids is taking an incredible amount of time and energy and so on. So if just, just anecdotally, are children more likely to act up where there are two parent families rather than one parent? Or is there something inherently pragmatic in children when they realise it's just me and mum? I can't act up. Well, I'm going to throw the research back to you first of all. And single parents out there, please don't get upset by this. But single parent families and families that have been through a divorce and so on, it is a risk factor for more behaviour problems in the child. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone that's a single parent is going to have a child with problems. It's fine. It's just that the group level, we know that's a, a risk factor. And probably the main reasons is, as I said, is it's just very stressful. You haven't got anyone to help pick up the children. You maybe have to work as well as deal with the kids, etc. It's very difficult. But we, we have lots of parents come in single and they do quite well in the programs, of course. But the other thing about it is, though, even if you are a, a single parent, there still is a parenting team. There's still the other parent that lives, you know, in the next suburb. Or if they've, even if they've disappeared, the child still has a conception of the other parent. There may be grandparents involved. There may be in-laws. And so we try to think about the parenting as a system, you know, the kind of village parenting, if you like, because it's really critical. If that system is at each other's throats and disagreeing and fighting and all that makes it very, very difficult. I am, of course, going to ask you now to recline on the couch, Professor Dad, <laughs> and uh, submit yourself to my own sort of probing about your own childhood. Your earliest years were in Port Hedland in in WA. Tell me about what your family was doing in Port Hedland in those early years. I have very little memory of it because I left when I was very young, but I was born in the, uh, you know, with the flying doctor service there on the way up to Broome. And my father was there working for the Air Force and then the weather department, monitoring the weather up there. So, of course, he was there when the great Montebello 
islands atomic tests occurred and he was one of the poor fellows that stood on the beach with a weather balloon and led it up to track the atomic tests there, which was done by the British. Good God. Did he see the blast? He saw the blast, although they did advise him as per occupational health and safety from those days to turn around and face the other way because of the nuclear <laughs> explosion. So this is a British nuclear test taking place in the islands off the northwest of WA. Yeah, in case people don't know that, it was actually a secret for many, many decades, but the British tested atom bombs there off the Montebello Islands off the north coast of uh, Western Australia. It wasn't actually unsealed as a secret until I think the 80s. And uh, it was very interesting because my father used to tell us all about it. And we'd be like, there was no atom bomb, Dad. <laughs> you know, no. What a terrible fantasist you are. <laughs> really? Oh, my God. And, and was, was his health ever affected by being in proximity to the blast? He think? used to complain that he itched a lot. And he attributed that to it, but he lived to be 94 and so uh, I don't think it was. Strangely. How did he tell the story of being present for that test? Uh, well, it depended. There's the before it was a, uh, when it was a secret, then it's afterwards. During the secret period, it was just telling us that he'd done that. He'd measured the um, atomic bombs, which, as I said, we didn't believe him. But then when it was released and it became uh, public knowledge, he then became a minor celebrity on Melbourne Radio he became a great raconteur of the great evil of the bomb that he stood on witness rising above the sea and and so on. So he loved to tell the story of that afterwards. So after Port Hedland, your family relocated to suburban Melbourne to Barry Humphrey's land. What do you remember of life in Barry Humphrey's land and in your in your childhood there? Oh, my goodness. The northern suburbs of Melbourne, I hated it. I just, for this me... The, this is the Mooney Ponds area, isn't it? Well, no, yeah. Mooney Ponds was the saviour for me. The, the Barry Humphreys area was the saviour because I was raised up in the northern suburbs of Merlinston, it was called. Right. Which is a cute little area and so on, but it was just bereft of anything, absolutely bereft. And so I would get on my bike and ride down to Carlton and Brunswick and just go, this is where it is. I'm a city boy. Take me here. But when I uh, went to high school, I met a bunch of kids that um, were like a, a huge tribe of teenagers that lived in Mooney Ponds. And I went, this is my family. This is real life. This is life. What did your parents' marriage look like to you when, as, a, as a child? Well, this is probably the reason why I, you know, when I was asked, what do you want to study? It was probably the marriage thing because they, I think that their marriage was probably fairly common for a lot of parents in that kind of 50s period. And that is that they didn't really get a chance to know each other before they were married. Um, they both wanted to escape from their own family. So he was a soldier that woke up and saw her as a nurse and they went, hi, and fell in love within an hour and got married and and then probably woke up a few years later and went, uh-oh, <laughs> what have we done? So we grew up in, in what was a, you know, pretty functional family, but very unhappy parents and, you know, with a mother that was just really trapped in that whole 1950s thing, cook, Iron the sheets. I swear she used to iron the sheets. Roast dinners every night. And we had five kids, so it was pretty tough for her. And so as soon as she raised us all, she was out of there. Could you see she was unhappy? Oh, God, yeah. We knew she was going to go. I remember my sisters used to say, she'll just leave as soon as she can, you know. Do you remember being distressed by discord in, in the marriage? Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. It's not great to grow up with that. I think if you're lucky, anybody out there that grows up with parents that kiss and love each other and all that, you know, think yourself very lucky. That's a wonderful thing to see. How old were you when you declared that this kind of traditional nuclear family thing just wasn't going to be for you? Oh, God, very early. I remember saying to my mum when I was just, you know, in probably even before primary school, I'm never having children. I'm never having a family. <laughs> she was like, yes, you will. Yes, you will. You will. And how about church? Was church a factor in the family as well? My grandfather was a Methodist minister, um, one of the founders of the Methodist church in Australia. And so we, we always had that tradition. But my parents were definitely losing their religion. So we were forced to go to Sunday 
Sunday school and I still remember the smell of Bill Cream and Sunday school <laughs> and having to sing the the songs Onward Christian Soldiers and all that. But as soon as I started to protest and my siblings protested, they just stopped it and went, yeah, you're right. I mean, they made a few little efforts. I remember they bought me um, God is for Real Man. What is that? It's the Bible written in beatnik. <laughs> You're, that can't be real. Is that it's real? It's real. I've still got it. It's called God is for Real Man and it's fantastic. There was this cat called... Uh, you Jesus. Know, no. and, and like he was against the man. He was against right. the man. And his name was Jesus. <laughs> That's it's right. like that kind of thing. Wow. It's like that. It's all in uh, total beatnik. Oh, it's just wonderful, wonderful book. Podcast, broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. How was high school life? for you when you were a teenager, Mark? Well, it, it, you could break it down into um, the disastrous early years and then the great <laughs> later years. The early years were at a high school at the very northern suburbs of Melbourne that was really in a mess. That's my experience of it. The school was set on fire five times while I was there. Bullying was rife. The teacher's had no control over the kids. It was terrible. And my brother had been, I think, the head prefect the year before I got there. So my initiation on day one was not happy. All right. You get your head punched in or something, did you? Oh, I think I was lowered down into the toilets by my ankles and then stuff put down my shirt and, you know, it was pretty yucky. But so my reaction to that was, well, okay, I'll form my own gang. I'll get you back. <laughs> so I became a little bit delinquent at that school and it was only two years before I actually got expelled from there. What brought you out of that life? What changed well, in your later teen years? Oh, who knows? But, I mean, sliding door moment, you know, when I did get expelled, there just happened to be a poster on the wall for um, sit an exam for entrance to university high. So I went, oh, I'm going to give it a shot. So I spun a deal with the high school to say, can you not tell my parents I'm expelled if I can get out. This is just when you've been expelled. Yeah, Your yeah. parents have not been told. They haven't been told. You've seen the, the, the flyer for sitting for the Melbourne University high school exam. You cut a deal? Well, I spoke to this guy, at Mr Dyer, his name was, and if you're out there, thank you so much for this moment in my life. He was the senior master, I believe, or junior master. I don't, he said, yeah, you're going to sit that exam and then if you can go... There's no record for your parents to worry about. So I set the exam and I got in. And life really for me started then. That was just unbelievable. On the tram every day from North Coburg down to University High, I met the big tribe from Mooney Ponds that were there. I was one that got in through the exam, but Uni High had a two-tier system. They had the exam entrance students and they had the local catchment area, Mooney Ponds, Footscray, and so on. So, of course, with my background, I was like, I'm with them. <laughs> so, so given that you had this uh, earlier, those earlier teen years as a, a wild child yourself, I wonder if that helps you look upon kids today, be less troubled by their behaviour, having been around it yourself and been in the midst of it yourself. Oh, probably, yeah. It doesn't It doesn't trouble me. I can watch it and just want to... I want to help it at the general level, but I don't get emotionally involved. And I think you're right there. I think that helped me with that. But University High School, what a wonderful experience. Even though I was still a rat bag there and my friends and I were still pretty delinquent and smoked up the back of the oval and all that sort of thing, it was a wonderful experience. And there were kids from homes of artists and musicians and we were we were just down the road from Carlton in the days of the of the you know, the great moratorium against the Vietnam War and it was all happening. 
And so I did all right there and I got into Melbourne Uni, but I didn't have any money to study. So I took a teaching fellowship, which was a disaster because I only woke up a few years later and thought, I can't be a teacher. <laughs> You've become the man. I've become the man. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And when I went to my first school placement as a teacher, the headmaster was the man we affectionately called the weasel, the headmaster of Faulkner High that had expelled me. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So I'm sitting in the, I'm sitting in the waiting room at a high school going, oh, here I am, the naughty boy again. <laughs> So that led you to conclude that teaching wasn't going to work out for you. What led you to psychology then? Well, I was meant to be a teacher and I was assigned to go to Ballarat or Castle Maine or something like that. And I just like, I can't do this. And so the band I was playing in at that point, they said, we're all going up to Brisbane. And I went, I'm in. <laughs> so I actually ran away with the band <laughs> and uh, moved up to Brisbane. But luckily my parents had given me that kind of middle class, you know, where you've got to be working on your career and educating and learning and all that. So even though we went up to Brisbane to kind of make it in this punk band, I went, I have to study. So I ro- enrolled in psychology at Queensland Uni. And what did you love about psychology? Oh, goodness me, I loved it. I It was the science that I'd kind of got from my father. He, he always had a deep love of science. So it had the science, but it also had sex, aggression, love, relationship, all the stuff that was just for me fascinating about people that I wanted to understand. The fascinating, messy stew that the is the human psyche. <laughs> exactly, yeah. that's right. So, so why the psychology of parenting? Was this a Greenfields subject at the time? No, it wasn't. It was strangely not part of the science or practice in Australia at all. In fact, in those days, if you had a child that was out of control, you would have probably ended up receiving some kind of play therapy, which is you know, pretty much nonsense. You might as well, you know, go and spend the money on renovating your bathroom as much as that's (laughs) going to help, you know. It just doesn't do it. The only way you get change with kids with behaviour problems is by helping the parents to become therapists for the kids in the home, if you like, change it where it exists. And the idea that parents can bring their child to me, I can go into the room with the child and have a conversation or play with them or do something and then deliver them back and they're going to be different is ridiculous. So when you came into the field, was this the time when Freud had really muddied the waters, you know, blaming cold mothers for this and that in the child? Was there a bit of repair work that needed to be done there by the the mess that Sigmund Freud had made of the field? That is such a pertinent question because that was exactly the driving force with Matt Sanders and myself and all of the others that were kind of meeting in darkened rooms up in Brisbane going, we need to undo that mess. And what about dibs in search of self? I had to read it as part of the high school curriculum, which in which the mother is blamed for the child having autism. Complete and utter nonsense. So we were there going, this is silly. Children learn how to behave. And it's not all about the, the dark night of the soul and the id and, the, and all that sort of thing. And, and we can just use practical strategies to say, this child is unhappy, these parents are unhappy, they're struggling. What can we do to just fix this up? Did your research tend to dovetail much more to what, what parents, uneducated parents might have normally called just simple common sense? There's an absolute lot of common sense in it. That's exactly right. And a lot of it is kind of grandma's rules, if Mm. you like, how to discipline and so on. But, you know, we've become so mixed up about how to parent, so much guilt about whether you're doing it right, so many people trying to be the friend of the child rather than feel comfortable to discipline. These things have made it very difficult for some parents, I think, and we don't have the extended family to model to us how it might be done. So if you haven't been given a manual on parenting, you're stuck in a flat with three kids and very little other contact or resources. That's a tough job. There's so much to be said for the old setup of a village with parents around and so on. I was recently in in China with my wife just watching their approach to family and you go, gee, 
there's something about this you got to love. Just all the elders are all part of the family, the young ones. Family comes first. Everybody's there. I'm sure it brings its own disadvantages where you sometimes go, oh, wish they'd all go away. But in terms of raising a child, it's so, so important. This might be a really obvious and maybe even a boring question, but in taking up the psychology of parenting, were you trying to understand something of your own family story? Oh, I think we, absolutely, yeah. I think a lot of people do psychology for that reason. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people get (laughs) turned off by psychology because they go, I just want to understand what happened to me, what happened to my parents. And they could probably get more from reading some good books than that because you go and do psychology and then it's all about crunching the numbers, measuring things, applying scientific methods. You know, it's tricky. When the, really what someone should do is read a novel if they're like, that's <laughs> not a bad idea. Well, you know, mm. the great novels are full of mm. wonderful stories and, and insights, kind of insights mm. yeah. The language around what do we call them, wild children, difficult children? It's changed so much over the last few decades. What have you seen of that, Mark? Yes, it's the growth of the diagnoses now so that, you know, there's a lot of children out there in schools and so on that have got labels of ADHD, hyperactivity, autism, anxiety, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think there's an overdiagnosis of these conditions? Well, that's a very good question. It's a two-edged sword, first of all. If you don't have a diagnosis and you're struggling with these things, it can be very disempowering. You're like, why is this happening to me? And so on. And so sometimes to have someone come along and say, don't worry, your child's got a common thing about ADHD, you know, that can be incredibly liberating for parents and the child and so on. So that's an advantage. On the other hand, it can be stigmatizing. If the child's label starts to precede them, people know it and it, and it hurts them, then that's not a good thing. We want to get rid of that at all. In terms of is there too much diagnosis, I mean, the battles over ADHD is one of the most interesting. I've been following this for years and years. You've got on the one hand people saying diagnosing children as ADHD and giving them medication is obscene. We shouldn't be doing it and there's too many diagnoses and so on. On the other hand, you've got paediatricians and psychiatrists going, there's so many children with ADHD that are not diagnosed that are being blamed and called rat bags and kick them out of the class when really they need help and medication. Now, interestingly, both of those stories are true, have truth in them. There are children that are diagnosed as ADHD and autism that it's done too quickly, too superficially, and it's probably not true. There are also many children that have those things that are not receiving care. And do you know that in Australia, even though we have a wonderful healthcare system, about only about 25% of kids with behavioural, emotional, psychiatric type problems get assessed and get the care they need. One of the first cases you worked on was a case in Queensland with a mum struggling with her little boy who was throwing very distressing tantrums. Can you tell me about that case? Yeah, well, back in those days when I first started, I had the time and the resources and so on to actually go into the home. So, I mean, that was a fantastic way to learn how to manage this, you know, because you've got your theory, but then you go out into the living room and the kitchen when that kid's throwing a tantrum and sit there with the parent through it. That's what I used to do, and it was very interesting. And I saw tantrums that went for three or four hours where the child was completely and utterly unsoothable. And what a nightmare that is for a parent to do that, trying everything. I remember that the one mother, I sat there, she, three hours, the child just screamed and, and so on. Three hours, three hours. Three hours. We drank a lot of tea. We kept making pots of tea kept trying to support her through it. Anyway, we got change and we did it by using a technique called time out, which is quite common now. A lot of people use it all over the world. A lot of people use it incorrectly, but we were using a correct technique called time out. Is that putting the kid in the naughty corner or is it something else? Right. that's that's what it is. But it's actually quite tricky to do and people do it incorrectly. And if 
the people that come to see us in our clinic, they will invariably say, oh, we already do time out. It doesn't work. And then we go, well, how did you do it? And it's usually about 95% right. Timeout works when it's 100% right. If you get it wrong, it's terrible. What's the difference? What, what, what do you need to make timeout work? Well, one, that the child's got to be taught all about it in advance. So they're empowered, they're bought into it, they understand. We get them to practice using on a pet or get their doll and put their doll in time out until the child is totally unempowered with understanding how it works. So the kid has to know exactly what's going on when they're getting time Yeah, well, they yeah. don't have to, but it, yeah. in, this is one step Stop, in increasing right. yeah. the thing. So number one, empower the child, get them to understand it. Number two, it's democratic. Everyone in the family should have to have time out. So if you're a parent, you've broken the rule, into timeout. Really? Yeah, absolutely. It's easy though. <laughs> just hide a book in there and then just, you know, have some quiet time. <laughs> Number three, it's got to be done really quickly. There's no point going, you're going to get timeout, you're going to get timeout, and everybody's emotion is going up and up and up until you finally use timeout. Everybody's already gone berserk. It's got to be like one instruction, five seconds into timeout like that, okay? Now, here's the thing people often don't know. Timeout ends when the child has regulated their emotions. So they've gone, whew, calm down, happy face, breathing, you're out, like that. So in other words, the child has the power to go, I can regulate and re-enter the family. As soon as they come out of timeout, hey, buddy, what are you doing, love? Back in time in. There's no leftover momentum of anger and all that. It's just... Hooray, we're out. We're out. Right. Happy times, time in. And then if you want to talk about what happened, do it later at bedtime, you know, when the child's calm. Don't talk, lecture them then. So that's some of the main ones. But we use timeout with this kid. And I would have only been in my 20s with that mum, single mum did time out with her, sat there with her, child got better. 30 years later, I'm in Sydney and I'm giving a talk at a big mental health centre and I'm talking about the data on time out and at the end of the talk, a woman stood up with a boy next to her, about 20 years old, and said, do you remember us? And said to the group, I used time out with this boy. We had a happy life after that. I was not coping. Oh, my God, it was such an amazing moment. Beautiful. There's the famous novel, Lionel Shriver's novel, we need to talk about Kevin, where mm. there's the story of a mother dealing with a child who turns out to be psychopathic. Mm. And we do know child psychopaths exist. This is They begin with animal... Torturing or, or don't they? I don't know. What's the theory on that these days, Mark? Yeah. Are, 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 can you say a kid is becoming psychopathic or is psychopathic as a child? Well, um, over the last 10 or so years, I've become, you know, the sort of go-to guy or our clinic has become the go-to guy for treatment of children that people are worried about the psychopathic traits. And, and let's just be clear, we're not talking about, this has got nothing to do with kids who might be having anxiety disorders over autism or ADHD no. and the like. This is a completely different subset here. No, this is where a parent is coming in and saying, I'm really scared of my child. I'm, I see things in them that I can't cope with. They want to hurt their brothers and sisters. They don't care about my emotions. This is an awful thing for a parent to face. And I, I remember a family I saw in Sydney where the mum said to me, I came in and I saw my little boy standing over the cot of his little sister and I, he was going to hurt her. And for her, that was a terrible, terrible day. She realised there was something in her child she didn't understand, she didn't like, she was frightened of it and so on. So we see kids like this quite often. We never call them psychopathic because, you know, that's really for adults that are offending in the criminal justice system and so on. But we do get kids that have got antisocial behaviour that bring other features with it, like uh, lack of empathy, uh, don't care about the feelings of other 
kids and so on. Other, other people's feelings are fictional. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So kind of a callous profile, if you like. That's been a real research interest of us for the last 10 years or so, looking at everything from how do you parent these kids, what's the attributions parents make about the nature of the child's problems, what's the genetic loading on these kids, what is their um, cognitive neurological profiles. We've been doing a lot of research in this, very interesting stuff. Where do you want to go with when you observe a child who may fit that profile? Well, what the whole point of the research is to being to get our parenting program up to the point where it changes them just as much as it changes children without the callous traits. Now, we do get change with them, but at a group level, it's not as robust as we get with kids that are anxious and do care about other people's feelings. Can you create a situation where the child has insight into this kind of incipient psychopathy? Again, I'm reluctant to use that word, but this kind of yeah, callousness. Yeah. Can you nip it in the bud or is there there's, there's something that can't be fixed with that? No, well, the data is not fully in on it. You can get change. Are we steering them off the path of going into a life of crime and hurting others? Very difficult to know because you'd have to do very longitudinal studies, you know, that are very hard to do, of course. And adult psychopaths are very good at figuring out what they need to do to appear to be neurotypical, if that's the word I'm looking for. Yes, that's right. So people would argue in that case the giving of insight is only going to add fuel to the fire. You know, I would say as kids it's much better to work on some of the hard neurological signs that these children don't pay attention to the emotions of other people. They don't read them. They don't um, kind of resonate with the distress of other people. So you want to be working on that. And, that we, you know, we've got some techniques for doing that. And that's part of the treatment research we do with these kids. Are we talking about a tiny percentage of the kids and their parents that come in here that uh, are going to fall under this umbrella? Yeah, yeah, that's worth noting there. So when you're talking about kids with have any kind of mental health behavioural issue in Australia, you're probably talking as high as 10 to 20% of kids have some kind of issue. Talking about those with aggressive antisocial behaviour, 5 10%. Of those that have got the callous traits, probably only one in five to one in ten of those. So, so that's something like one percent. Then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So a tiny minority of the families that come in with difficult kids are, are going to be in that situation. That's right. But we do know from the literature with forensic studies and so on that when you get someone that's got those traits, they actually do a lot of damage. And they're a kind of a risk factor for other people, you know, domestic violence and manipulation and all sorts of things. So the harm they do is disproportionate to how many of them there are. You mentioned that at five you told your mum, the nuclear family, I am so not going there. That's <laughs> not for me. Did you change your mind or has that stayed with you, that, that resolution? No, I think I always sought it in various ways. I think I probably was horrified by what I saw early but always wanted to really make it work. My dream has always been to have a kind of nuclear family that's embedded in a village of a bigger family, the the European model, the, the Asian model. I think it's a bit sad, the splitting of us all into such small units. Yeah, it's quite a recent phenomenon, isn't it? The whole idea of a closed nuclear family, isn't it? Very, very closed and very recent. What do you think that five-year-old kid who made that decision would make of the man you've become in working in these areas, the ability to walk into that storm and try and make <laughs> sense of it? Because it's a terrifying thing for many people to be able to do. I'm, I'm, I'm really impressed by your, by your fortitude in this kind of work, Mark. Oh, well, thank you. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Most people ask, what would you go back and tell the five-year-old? But what would the five-year-old think mm. of me? Oh, my God, he'd be completely bamboozled, I think. <laughs> I think he'd be happy about me playing the guitar and doing woodwork and mates and stuff like that, I think. <laughs> You'd be most impressed by that. You, you told me just before you came into the studio that you're, you actually make guitars. I, I wonder if that's the little island of peace in this kind of incredibly intense and interesting world you normally live in from nine to five. Oh, look, the, the end of the week, you know, for me, and this, I would say this to anybody doing psychology or whatever, do not give up the other stuff in your life. 
you know, for me to go into my little workshop and be able to um, build things and and sand and work with beautiful timber and 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 say I can point a stick at that and I did that. That's a pretty fabulous thing. You're now the head of an institution called Growing Minds Australia. What is that? Decades ago, no one spoke about mental health in Australia. It was stigmatised and all that. Everybody speaks about it now. Everybody wants the psychologist to help us fix the problems we've got. The government is on board with that. And recently, they've gone, we need to go early. We need to start focusing on child mental health. Traditionally, that's a tiny fraction of the budget was spent on child mental health. And the government a few years ago said we need to bring the researchers together to form a national clinical trials network, start cooperating, do studies and make sure they're implemented into the system. So they funded the clinical trials network. We called it Growing Minds Australia. We've been funded to do that. It's uh, incredibly difficult because Every night I sit there and go, I just want to go back to the clinic and (laughs) work with families because this is systems change now. We're talking about trying to get the national system of child mental health to start working together as a team. Very, very difficult. But we're about halfway through. We've made small steps. We've got a lot more to do. Mark, it's been completely fascinating speaking with you. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, Richard. Thank you. Professor Mark Dads is Director of the Child Behaviour Research Clinic at the University of Sydney, and he's also the Director of Growing Minds Australia. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Hey, Conversations listeners. Miyuki Okiranta here, host of the Earshot podcast. And if you love compelling and candid first-person stories, then let me tell you about episode one of our new season of stories all about remembering and forgetting. Memory can be a trickster, a soother, a tormentor. But what would it be like to have no memories at all, to forget who you are? I had no recollections, I had no fears. The Australian band Rocket Science, fronted by singer-songwriter Roman Tucker, was labelled the next big thing. But everything changed when Roman had a serious accident and lost his memory. Do you know who I am? I guessed. I said, my auntie? And she said, no, I'm your mother. Check out the Earshot podcast to hear Roman's story about trying to remember himself to rebuild his identity. Find us on the ABC Listen app.